0: This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas... They are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom, it has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two if you want to see this as i said it's called the norris n-o-r-r-i-s sneaker go to 511 tactical and that discount code that i was talking about is shield 15 s-h-i-e-l-d one five that will be applicable for all of your purchases the only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher so if they're offering a 20 percent or 25 percent off obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think are amazing, um, go to 5.11 Tactical, put in Shield 15 and save 15% every single time. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing and this is episode 254 and I am so excited to bring to you this week world-renowned coach Mike Salemi. Now, Mike is not only well-known, especially in the world of uh, odd objects like kettlebells and Bulgarian bags, but he very recently completed a study with Santa Clara County Fire Department, along with the California Center for Functional Medicine, studying all elements of firefighter wellness. So in this, you're going to hear us talking about the coaching and fitness side, but then a lot on that study as well. Some incredible information out there. Great insight from uh, Mike regarding our profession. We talk about footwear. So if you heard the intro with the 5.11 Norris sneaker, that's something that I think is a great solution to the footwear problem that we have and a host of other things. So before we get to the episode, please take a moment and go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to this on, and leave feedback, leave a rating. Five Star obviously makes us most visible. Subscribe, and then take these incredible episodes and share them. It can be word of mouth, email, social media, carrier pigeon. I don't care how you do it, but this one in particular for the fire service needs to be heard by every single person wearing a uniform around the planet. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike Salemi. Enjoy. All right, Mike, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time immediately after your recent trip to come on the podcast.
1: Oh, man, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about it.
0: Brilliant. Well, I would love to hear a huge amount about the the trip, but I want to kind of start with a couple of opening questions. So first one, where are we... Uh, excuse me, let me say that again. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today?
1: Uh, so right now, I'm in Northern California, about 30 minutes south of San Francisco. This is pretty much home base for me i I travel quite a bit but this is this is where i would call home for sure
0: excellent all right so were you born there or you born somewhere else
1: you know i was actually born in south florida in uh fort lauderdale but my family and i moved to um to the bay area when i was about somewhere around like seven eight years old so pretty much the bay area's been home ever since
0: all right now i'd love to kind of hear some backstory. so what was your family dynamic like what did your parents do and how many siblings
1: so interesting. So like both my mom and my father uh, are both from the, uh, the same town in Sicily, like a really, really small town, pretty much out in the country. And so my whole family, I've got a lot of family still in Italy and in Sicily. And so my family culturally has just very strong, like old school Sicilian roots. And, you know, so growing up, it was, you know, I pretty much grew up with my grandparents as well. We all lived in the same house. And my grandfather was a farmer, and, and so you know, he cooked a lot of his own – or pretty much had a very, a very big garden and, and was the, the, the gardener for every single person in our family, cousins, uh, uncles, aunts. And uh, so mom and dad are both from the same town in Sicily, came over here, and they immigrated through Ellis Island and then landed in Connecticut and then South Florida – um, you know, I've got one brother and, you know, we outside of having just one brother, my mom's side is quite large. My father's side is quite large. So it's been uh, being raised Italian from a young age means lots and lots of pasta from from a young from a young age.
0: <laughs> well, then, so that's interesting. So obviously they come from a country where they probably, like, as you said, they farm, they grew their own food. They cooked in the kitchen with their hands. Um, what was their impression of the kind of fast food mentality once they came over here?
1: You know what, like, that's interesting you say that, you know, in the house, we pretty much, you know, they, 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 everything we ate is what we, what what they cooked or what they grew for the most part, but there was definitely, you know, a transition to more of a a Western diet. Like as a kid, you know, I, I want, as a young kid, before I really started getting serious in sports, um, you know, I, of course I wanted fast food and McDonald's and all that stuff, but still, you know, I remember elementary school, um, you know, every day took a lunch, which was some type of like pasta dish. Every dinner was usually eaten together as a family. Um so they, they definitely still maintain that, that cultural of of cooking what, what you grew. Um my grandfather had just an amazing garden. I mean I, I now now looking back, you know, he, he's passed on, um looking back, I, I really can't even believe how fortunate I was to, you know, grab lemons off the tree and he would just eat raw lemons, just hand it to you, throw some salt on it. And that was, you know, that was our treat growing up and apples and peppers. And, um, you know, they, they would, my family also in Italy or in Sicily, they had, uh, olive orchards. So we still, you know, up until even recently, we would still get jugs of just cold pressed first press, uh, olive oil. So I was, I was very spoiled. We had, my whole, our whole garage. We actually had a whole wall of canning items. So from tomato sauces to olives to uh, marinated vegetables. So you know, I was quite fortunate in that regard for sure.
0: Right, and how how has that upbringing affected the way you eat now as an adult and as an athlete?
1: It was a huge. It's been a huge role, you know. Like, well, one of the interesting things was when I was a young kid. Um, you know, I started as an athlete in gymnastics. And I'll never forget, one of my coaches, his name was uh, Krasimir Duniv, and he was a two-time Olympian for Bulgaria. He was he got silver medal on the high bar in Atlanta and was the first guy to ever do seven release movements in a row on the high bar. And this guy looked just, like I always tell people, like, I mean, I still never forget, like he just looked like uh, just chiseled, just ripped, jacked. And as a kid, like it was such a such a cool role model to have. And I remember when I was somewhere around 12 years old, you know, he said, like, if you want to be the very best, if you want to look like me, if you want to be like me, you got to stop eating fast food. You can't eat that shit. You can't eat that stuff. And so, you know, that was a huge influence on me, especially from an athletic performance standpoint. And, you know, growing up with I had gut issues growing up from fungal infections, parasite infections. Bacterial infections that were causing stomach ulcers. And through my own kind of path of working on healing those things, that's what I would really say set me deeper into actually studying this stuff at a deeper level. But you know, from having the background of my family plus Krasmir as an influence, eating healthy and whole foods and, and making better choices has really been a part of my life since since I was a really young kid.
0: Brilliant. Now, it's interesting that you say that because when you take a step back and look at kids growing up now in the U.S., their heroes are telling them the Big Macs and they drink Gatorade or Pepsi or Mountain Dew. So, you know, I made an observation, I talked about this a few times on, on the podcast, where the World Cup, the soccer World Cup we just had, was sponsored by McDonald's. And, you know, it, it's it's a very dangerous thing where you take our physical you know specimens are athletic role models and you allow them to endorse things that are really causing ill health in our country
1: yeah it makes no it makes no sense and even like the olympic games like i remember watching you know i watched the olympic games every you know every four years especially the summer games and you'll just see a lot of those sponsors mcdonald's coca-cola etc and i've got you know buddies who've gone to the olympics and it's just you know, they said it's everywhere. Like you can get anything you want there, but you know, the fast food especially has because of, you know, the dollars behind it, um, it just doesn't make any sense when you think of like peak athletic performance, health, wellness, and then having a McDonald's sign right next to it.
0: Yeah, I agree. All right. Well just just staying with that for one more moment. Um the 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 eating together, that's something that's huge, is something that we've really coveted in the fire service, you know, in the fire station, the The dining room table is definitely the kind of nucleus Um, but it's also something that we see kind of dissipating a bit now with people going to separate bunks in the fire stations and I think it it extends to society as well like with the the smartphones and the fast foods people don't cook together so much they don't eat together did you see a lot more cohesion in that kind of sicilian family upbringing around the the family table as far as almost like the, the mental health side too
1: yeah, certainly. I mean, that's that's where we kind of like would recap the day. That's where that that you know it, it was so much more than just food. I mean, it was community. It was connection. Um, it was just sharing. It was just just even you know even if someone didn't even talk at the table, no, they wouldn't even have to talk. But just the presence of having uh you know a fa- my father there, my brother there, my grandfather, my grandmother. Just a lot of times, I think you know as kids, it's like because kids are just super observant, right? Like nothing even needs to be said, but just the act of showing up at a dinner table at a certain time. And it didn't happen all the time, don't get me wrong. But for the most part, when I think back, you know, I think of, you know, everyone's at the dinner table, we're all eating together. And, uh, you know, after dinner, we all go our separate ways. But those like that, that example of what it is to, you know, be close as a family to, to share and have that opportunity is something that, that I do feel is starting to really diminish today, unfortunately, you know, and, and it is such a beautiful part of developing community and, and developing stronger connections with not just family, but then hopefully carrying that out outside. It's like, you know, soup. I mean, this happens all the time too. I'm, I'm no exception, but like when you go out to eat with friends, we got our cell phones on the tables and uh, you know, that was never the case back then. I mean, cell phones really weren't around when I was growing up, but like, uh, especially when I was younger, but it's like, you know, how many times do we check our cell phones during a meal? And, you know, when you think about how distracting that is and how that interrupts the, the connection between people, you know, it's, it, it can be quite significant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing a, a picture, you know, a quote on it um, a while ago now online. I believe, if I'm not misquoting, it, it said, rather than building taller walls, maybe we should build larger tables. And I love that. You know, include people into the conversations rather than exclude.
1: I love that. I love that.
0: Right. Well, then you, you mentioned uh, so gymnastics. What, how old were you um, when you first entered gymnastics?
1: You know, I think I was approximately somewhere around like really when I moved here. So, like yeah, like seven, eight ish years old. And then I did that until I was 14, until I experienced uh, a lower spine injury.
0: Okay. What, what injury was that?
1: So I pinched uh, L5S1. And it was actually right around the time that I was having a growth spurt. And like I was good, don't get me wrong, but I was nothing like, you know, I was not going to the Olympics, like I was just not not going to be a super high-level gymnast. Uh, but at the same time, it's like that was right when I was having a growth spurt. And so I took, I think, about a little over a year off to rehab that injury. And in gymnastics, obviously, like the taller you are the the less advantage it is from uh, from a mechanic standpoint in in those movements and on those events so when I came back I was like you know I'm just obviously I, I don't foresee myself going very 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 far with this to the you know to the highest level and uh, so I ended up transitioning out to competitive powerlifting uh, at that time.
0: Right now who was the driving force behind this cuz you found a gymnastics school that not only you know was was for kids but was run by a highly uh, uh, you know decorated coach um, and then you went straight into powerlifting so so was there a driving force behind that or was it just your own internal motivation as a child
1: You know I wish I could say it was my own internal motivation but actually I got I got to really thank my parents for that one um you know they, they even and my brother too my brother Actually, I think he started gymnastics, and he was he was quite a bit better than me. He started gymnastics when he was like five, and I'm very tight with my brother, very close with him. And so, you know, I had that example and him kind of paving the way for me there. And then my parents were just strongly, strongly encouraging it, and especially in the early years. Like, I don't think I really enjoyed gymnastics until I started working with Krasimir as a coach. Uh, Before that, I—I mean, I still enjoyed it, but I was at Stanford University as as part of their program, and uh, you know, great people. But I was—I feel like at that time I was doing it more because I felt I had to. And then once once we—once I—we moved and I switched uh, switched gyms to where Krasimir was coaching. Just—just by chance, you know, he—you're talking—he went to the ninety-six games, and then like a lot of athletes after the Olympics, they end up staying staying around. And so it just so happened he ended up being, you know, uh at a gymnastics facility like within 10 minutes from my house. And so I lucked out and I really found in him just an unbelievable coach, an unbelievable mentor, and, and really someone who just helped me find a love for gymnastics. And when I look back at it now, Gymnastics for me, whether you know whether I didn't go to the highest level by any means or not, like gymnastics I attribute so much to my foundation for movement quality, body awareness, uh, learning to work through fears, um, working with a team. Uh, it, it, gymnastics was just an incredible foundation for everything I did athletically later down the road.
0: Right well I heard you mention in um one of your other interviews and I I found this fascinating because I've I've been on the same kind of path myself not the high level athletic side but what I'm about to say and that is injuries then creating um a quest for more knowledge on the human body and how to fix those and how to overcome you know prevent it happening the next time which then leads you down another path so you get hurt in a different way and 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 and, you know as you say in this interview it's not that you're doing things wrong it's just that you were pushing your body to the limits in, in in a positive way but then we we keep tripping upon some imbalances and then finding another way so what what were kind of the earliest times where you really realized that when you were getting hurt that there were actually solutions to some of those problems?
1: Man, I don't think that that level of awareness, I don't think that came until many years later, uh, probably until, you know, it was just kind of like my my path in gymnastics got injured. And as a result, found powerlifting due to the person who was rehabbing me was a very highly competitive powerlifter. He was, in fact, um, in, in one of the drug free organizations, he was a world champion. He was drug free, bench pressed uh, over 600 pounds and and this was, you know, back then 15 16 oh, ish years ago. So you're looking at, you know, back then, especially just a very high level guy, but it really didn't start coming into my awareness that these injuries were essentially opportunities to to learn and to find a new path and to dig deeper and to be connected with new communities and new mentors until I had worked with a coach uh, named Paul Check. And Paul Czech, I started working with him in 2013 because I had, uh, when I was competing in kettlebell sport at, at, at the elite level, I had an injury that no one could figure out. And I worked with like, I don't even know, like 10 practitioners over the course of two and a half years and learned a lot, but no one really brought resolution to this. It was a compartment syndrome in my left arm. So essentially this, um, an issue that on any hard attempt in competition in training, et cetera, I would lose complete feeling of my left arm and then my forearm would swell massively and uh, literally the, it would look like a mini balloon in my forearm and you know, that, that, that kind of like what we call that, that pain teacher, you know, sent me to Paul uh, because he really specializes in really just cases that no one wants to take or no one can take. And once working with him because he's so much about body, mind and spirit And looking at the whole person as opposed to just the physical symptom of an injury, that's really when the realizations and I started looking back into my path of gymnastics, powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting. And I saw all these little injuries and all these transition points along the way, while at the time being very painful, also opening up this whole new world of understanding opportunity and also the inspiration to share with others from an authentic place.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more and it really kind of struck me when you were talking about that in the other interview that I listened to. Um, I, very long story short, about six years ago, I tore my back lifting a patient at work. When I say tore, I, I stretched ligaments in the back, had bulged discs, was the worst injury I'd ever had as as an adult by far. Um, and what initially seemed like, you know, is this going to stop my career? You know, pretty, pretty scary moment. Um, the knee jerk immediately from... The workman's comp and the physicians that we were sent to was well I'll take all these pills and there's probably going to be surgery and I was like nah no, that's that's not the way that I'm programmed So I immediately started looking into chiropractic and, and the PT and then stumbled across a thing called foundation training which was uh, Eric Goodman, Dr. Eric Goodman and then went used his practice ended up completely healing it actually coming back even stronger and that was really kind of it was almost the same year that, that you had yours. Where it made me realize that we always have shame when we get hurt. Oh, we 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 you know we made a mistake. It was our own fault. Rather than I love that phrase, pain teacher. All right, here's where I am now. First, let me address what's you know causing this, and then let me work out what led to that. And then, as you said, then let me tell everyone else so they don't make the same mistake.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the power. That's the most powerful teacher out there. You know, because when you can speak from that place, you're, you're not speaking and and sharing from like a head full of knowledge, right? You're speaking from an authentic felt experience. And you know, that, that's really what I found people to relate to, to most. And that's really, that's why I get so passionate about it. And that's why I'm sure you're so passionate, you know, about sharing that with, with not only just family, friends, coworkers. Um, so that people, you know, I, I think, whether it's from a professional standpoint or from an athletic standpoint I mean one of the worst things as an athlete is to be like is to be stopped in your natural progression or your natural evolution towards moving towards your goals and so while they are they can be beautiful teachers it's like if we have the ability to avoid those those pitfalls or those 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 setbacks that can put us back for you know 6 months a year two years then man, you know, it's like we can go a lot further uh, potentially. So that—that's, you know, I, I see that in in what you've just shared in your journey, and you know, I think that's that's amazing. That's that's very cool to hear.
0: Right now, with Paul check, was was that when you were first introduced to kettlebells, or do you use them before?
1: No, I was using them. Um, shoot, I was using kettlebells approximately. I Started competing somewhere around two thousand and nine. And I was using kettlebells when I was training in powerlifting. I was first introduced to them by, um, there's a, a well-known powerlifting gym in Columbus, Ohio called Westside Barbell. And I was training out there when I was competing in powerlifting. And so we're looking at like, I think approximately 2005 or so is when I first was was kind of, uh, was kind introduced to kettlebells.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, I, I had uh, Matt Wenning on the show and I just, just released uh, AJ Roberts today. Both of those were Westside grads as well.
1: Oh wow! Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I just uh, just connected with with AJ recently at a conference.
0: Oh, brilliant! Yeah, very very humble guy. Fellow Brit as well. Um, okay, so then, so what I'd love to do is explore the kettlebell side a little bit first, because I, I I know that you were the competition side, which I want to delve into a bit, and then also the kind of hard versus soft, because. Even though, like a lot of my community is exposed to the CrossFit side of of kettlebells, you know, obviously there's a lot more depth than than what we're normally exposed to. So, firstly, if you wouldn't mind explaining the the hard versus soft uh, philosophies,
1: yes, certainly. So, what we're what we're kind of referring to, if, if maybe some of the listeners aren't familiar with, like hard and soft. So, the hard style um, doesn't necessarily mean it's it's like harder. Um, but essentially these, these two styles, what, what you're gonna see is so if we if we take it back to to Russia, so you know, I, I was fortunate enough to travel to Russia and and was able to meet with a bunch of really cool people and, and learn a bunch about the strength history out there. So typically a hard style way of lifting, um it was more in the United States at least, when it was popularized, was by a guy named Pavel Sasulin. And so you're looking at like nineteen ninety nine. And in that style of lifting, that's in Russia more or less the way that they're going to be conditioning younger athletes. So whether it's elementary school kids, middle school kids, and it's a very foundational way of lifting. If you look at the mechanics of the movements, you kind of have two broadcast classifications. You have ballistic or like explosive type lifts, which is going to be your swings, your cleans, your snatches. And when you see those lifts, those are going to be pretty much when most people think kettlebell training, that's usually the first style or technique that they're going to be exposed to and think of. And it's that very explosive hip snap. Um, So in CrossFit gyms, probably 95 plus percent of them are using, for example, that style of movement. Very good for speed, speed endurance, uh, power And then in also that system of kind of hard style education in the United States, they also go over and and share what's called grinding-based lifts. So those are going to be like your slower strength-based movements, whether it's your overhead presses, your Turkish get-ups, your squats. And as I mentioned earlier, that kind of school of thought is is, is fantastic, and it's very good to develop an exquisite base of strength and of competency in the most foundational lifts. Then – if you look back in Russia, once someone gets into more or less like high school and especially in the military, then you take kind of that foundation and then you really start progressing in terms of volume. Because when you look at a kettlebell, one of the things that you notice – so take let's say a barbell compared to a kettlebell. The beautiful things about a barbell is – one of the big things is is – you can incrementally load it very high. Like you can never get a six hundred pound kettlebell. You just couldn't do it. You wouldn't find it. And uh, <laughs> holding a like ship just, somewhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've I've, I've lifted two hundred pound kettlebells, but even that, it's like you're rarely gonna clean that. Like I think the most I've ever done was a uh, uh, what was it? A seventy two kilo kettlebell. So something like a hundred and fifty or hundred and almost sixty pounds on one, and it was like.
0: It was really hard,
1: just because the construction of it, uh, the size of the handle, etc. So, you know, if you're if you're working for one rep absolute strength, like you're trying to hit a one rep max on a deadlift, squat, bench, like, uh, you know, the barbell is your tool. It's a great tool. The kettlebell, you know, the thirty-two kilos is kind of typically when we're talking about classical weights and and the weights that are most lifted. Uh, 32 kilos is kind of the higher end. Of course, you've got 40 kilos, 48 kilos, et cetera. But the way you really progress with a kettlebell most efficiently is through repetitions. And that's what kettlebell sport is about. So what they did is in kettlebell sport, classically, they took uh, a combination of two events. And one event is called long cycle, which is essentially a clean and jerk. And men in the professional division compete with two 32 kilo bells. So about 72-ish pounds in each hand, and you cannot stop. You have to – the only rest period you have is in the rack position at chest level or when the bells are overhead and the elbows and the legs are fully locked out. So you repeat clean and jerks nonstop repetitively for 10 minutes without a break, and so it requires exquisite, exquisite strength endurance. And that is the primary way in which they condition the Russian military. So once you have that base of strength, you take that base of strength and then the mechanics slightly change. So they call it uh, the soft style, as you were saying, James, because if you observe both types of movement side by side, one thing that you'll notice is the soft style or the more, let's say, kettlebell sport inspired way of lifting is much more relaxed. The breathing rhythm is different. It's The mechanics almost look like a pendulum or like a, like a child swinging on a swing set. And so everything about that form of lifting is all about energetic and mechanical efficiency. And so 10 minutes nonstop, that's long cycle. And then the other event you can compete in is uh, what's called biathlon. And that is 10 minutes unbroken of a double kettlebell jerk. So chest to overhead, chest to overhead nonstop. And then you come back and you do a single kettlebell snatch with one hand switch in 10 minutes. So maybe you you do five minutes on the right arm, five minutes on the left with a single 32-kilo bell, and then they take the combined score of both those. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, more or less the, the benefits of both sides. Like what I love, love, love to see in CrossFit gyms and gyms out there is an understanding of how, when, and why to utilize both. Because, for example, if you're in a wad, not saying that you couldn't use a hard style explosive technique, that can be great. But if you really want to be as efficient as possible and you want to beat the guy next to you, you're going to really want to learn breathing techniques. You're going to want to learn how to be efficient with the movements. Um, And so with that, you know, you you can, man, it's incredible. If you really master the soft style, uh, what you can do from a performance perspective as well.
0: Yeah, and then it goes to to all movements, doesn't it? But ultimately, it's efficiency that we're looking for, and no uh, kind of exogenous uh, unused tension in the body.
1: Exactly, hundred percent.
0: Right. Well, you just just as a, a segue because you did mention breathing. Are, th- are there like specific breathing philosophies that you that you adhere to in
1: your own practice for uh, for training in kettlebells? Yeah, let's let's talk about that
0: that kind of uh, training first.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. Man, there are so many different breathing techniques, and uh, it really didn't start. I really didn't start understanding the different breathing techniques until I was in Russia. And so, the most common breathing technique that let's just say most people will use when they do a hard style. So again, that that explosive, that fast, that hip snap or hip hinge technique is going to be what's called either um, it'll either be referred to a paradoxical breathing rhythm or a biomechanical match, and it's where. When the bell swings up and you really drive the hips forward, you give that pressurized exhalation breath. And then as the bell s- starts coming down towards the body on the downswing, you take a sharp inhalation breath and charge the the, the abdominal cavity. In the sports style, there's, there's, kind of, there's multiple breaths. Um, I'll go over just two. One is very simple, and that's essentially the exact opposite of what I just said. And so what you would do is, when the bell is rising, the breath would rise. So you would inhale when the bell comes up and you would exhale when the bell comes down. And that's called an anatomical breathing rhythm. And, and the whole theory and philosophy around that goes back to energetic efficiency. And so essentially one of the things that, and this is the way I teach it, is when you look at any time someone's coming out of the fetal position, so like let's say you, made a, you put your body into like a ball right now, like you you crouch down on the floor, you hug your knees, so you're in the fetal position. When you come out of the fetal position to like a standing position, physiologically that is naturally matched with inhalation. When the spine extends, like if someone was just standing, and you could just do this right now, when you inhale, so if you take a really, really deep inhalation breath, what you'll notice is you'll get taller on the inhale. That's because the rib cage is opening, that's because inhalation, is also it excites the extensors of the body. When you exhale, that excites the flexors of the body. So exhalation is more combined with moving into the fetal position, so the opposite. So when you combine that type of breathing rhythm, it works exactly with our natural physiology. When you extend, you inhale. That excites the extensors. That brings you into a standing position. And when you go into the downswing, you would exhale. The only... You know the only thing that that I found with that breathing rhythm that can get someone really really far it certainly can. But when I was in Russia, I learned this this combination breathing rhythm of both of them. And so it might sound complicated, but once you learn, I could teach someone it in literally like sixty seconds. Um, essentially, it's how can you keep this breathing rhythm that's more conducive for more in a, of an endurance type or a cyclical type movement, yet establish enough pressurization in the body so you maintain the spine is stable so essentially there's two exhalation breaths there's one a partial exhale when the bell is almost in the back of the backswing there's another partial exhale when you really drive forward and then when the bell's just floating and it's weightless there's just a natural inhale so it's kind of hard to explain just via audio but it is uh very easy to teach and that is actually the breathing rhythm that I really love because you can use it with any technique. You can use it with hard style techniques. You can use it with soft style techniques. You can – and it's a way to establish that pressurization to protect the spine but get more oxygen into the system so you can go for longer durations.
0: See, I've, I find that all this so so fascinating. I've, I was exposed to, I guess, thinking about breathing just in the last probably three years. I had Brian McKenzie on – um, some other you know great people even bass Ruten talking about his breathing device and um it, it, it i heard you again and i think it was the same podcast talking about the bracing of the spine and you're absolutely right it, we seem to be so focused in holding that breath in like any any amount of weight is going to crush us into a piece of paper when the reality is you know yes those those extremely heavy movements when we've Absolutely, got to brace. Require a certain amount of pressurization, but I think we forget that the the breath is far more important than that in most of the the movements that we do in the gym.
1: Totally, and, and you know that's it's such a great point. And, and like, I'll just speak. You know, generally, uh, you know, out of all the years that I've been doing kettlebells and teaching kettlebells, you know, I've seen obviously a lot of different lifters. I see a lot of kettlebell, you know, gyms and schools and. What I tend to observe when people, you know, there's pluses and minuses of both sides. For those who strict stick to one philosophy, if you only stick hard style, you're going to get a lot of benefit, but you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have your blind spots. You're gonna have your weak points. If you only stick to kettlebell sport or soft style, you're going to be very efficient, but you're also going to have weak points. The the, the beauty and the mastery comes in an understanding and application of how and when to utilize both. And if all you do is that, you know, that super um, uh, restricted, rigid type breathing rhythm, where, where you know, where you're holding your breath, you're pressurizing 100% all the time, you're gonna have a most more than likely you're gonna have a very rigid body. And if you take, if you extrapolate that, like you could say, rigid body, rigid mind. And when you when you take some, when you take a hard style technique or a lifter that's only been using that. And you teach them, you know, some, some of these things, these nuances of how to be more energetically efficient, how to utilize a more efficient breathing rhythm, man, I've seen it skyrocket people's hard style lifts. And, you know, that's why I really feel there's, there's an application of both. You know, if, you, if all you, you got to think, the way I look at it breathing is it's like a dial. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to, if, if I just have, for example, a five pound weight on the floor and I'm looking to, to bend over and pick it up, I'm not going to brace 100%. I'm not even going to brace. I haven't passed the stabilization threshold to necessitate that. And if I do that, then what it's going to do, it's going gonna, it's gonna to train a faulty sequence in the body so that when you get put in that position in the future, for example, and let's say you didn't stabilize, well, more than likely you, you may throw your back out or some, something may happen. So it's like, you know, you want to stabilize, think of it like a dial, but at the same time understand that you don't want to stabilize at every single load that you do. You wouldn't stabilize, you know, brace for picking up a pair of socks off the ground. And again, if you did, it would throw off the natural mechanics of the body.
0: Yeah. Now, now, what's your take on nose breathing? I kind of put that into my training since talking to some of those, uh, Dr. Bliss of Ranish was another one I had on, um, and the... The philosophy behind it made a lot of sense, as far as to kind of deregulating, trying not to get into that almost like fight or flight mode. Um, and so I try and do as much as I can now through my nose, whether it's inhale, exhale. Do you have a, a philosophy on that with with more of the kind of again higher intensity, longer duration events?
1: Yeah, you know what's interesting is that really didn't start. I have to, I have to give credit to to Paul Check because. You know, I really didn't start utilizing that and really start at least focusing on that in my competitive lifts until I started working with him. And, and the way it really came about was, um, you know, one of the things that we would do to train, especially during the rehab process, it w- is we would do a lot of what's called working in exercises and activities. And to kind of briefly break that down, we're all familiar with what working out is. You know, it's, it's any any exercise or movement – that is an expenditure of energy. It's, it's an exercise that costs the body more in resources than it brings in. A working in exercise is the exact opposite. A working in exercise is an energy-cultivating activity. An, an exercise or a movement that brings in more energy and resources to the body than it than it expends. And so this could be uh, active meditation movements, Tai Chi, Qi Gong And so one of the things that we would do – and in all those movements, you're going to use more of a a nasal-type breathing rhythm. You're going to use more of what would be considered a parasympathetic breathing rhythm, a a breathing rhythm that stimulates the rest, repair, digest side of the nervous system, of the autonomic nervous system. And what you'll find is in in, in the training, what we would do – and I found this to be hugely beneficial from from an athletic perspective – You know, we would start with with basic movements, whether it would be considered something like a breathing squat and where the breathing rhythm would be exactly, as I mentioned earlier, when you squat a bodyweight squat, when you squat down at a very slow pace, you exhale through the nose. When you begin squatting up, you inhale. And the whole goal and the objective is to perform a a, a 10 to 20 minute long set uh, of unbroken squats, for example, where. You would one not sweat. Two, your breath rate and your heart rate would not increase. Uh, three or, or four, if you consider it that way, your digestion would improve. And the last criteria is your tongue would stay moist. If the tongue dries out, for example, you know you're heading into more of a sympathetic state. And so we would use these exercises and build up to utilizing them with kettlebell moves, like like an American swing. So a swing to the overhead position, and it would be very light, maybe four kilos, six kilos, eight kilos, but my objective would be to go for like 20 minutes unbroken and really try not to sweat, try not to uh, have my heart rate elevate, my pre-rate elevate. And what I found was is that just trying to do American Swings with that type of criteria and working over the course of six months to be able to do that for 10 to 20 minutes My gosh, when I got into competition and I'm on the platform and normally in a 10 minute set, I might be going like, you know, sympathetic, my heart, I might be, you know, start breathing heavy at minute one or minute two. Now that got prolonged to minute three, four, five, and six. And so when you would see other competitors on the platform, they may be losing steam earlier, whereas I was setting myself up from that perspective to go longer. And the nasal breathing was a huge part of that just because of, of the parasympathetic nervous system effect of, of, that, of that breathing rhythm. Yeah.
0: yeah. Sorry, sorry for the dog barking in the background. Then someone's no, knock, knocking on my door trying to tell me about Jesus. But <laughs> they've gone now. <laughs> the, the, the German Shepherd is good at dissuading cold callers. Um, anyway, uh, so, so yeah, and I agree completely. And I, What I found was uh, a great application of that in, in the CrossFit world was the um, uh, EMOM. So, yeah. You know, normally you do about 30 seconds of work, that 30 seconds immediately trying to deregulate and focusing on that breathing through the nose, it was incredible how close to 100% you were by the time that second minute started again.
1: Mm. Yep. yep, exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, then I want to just switch to, to one more thing and then I really want to start exploring what you're doing with the uh, Santa Clara fire department. But um the, the other things that I've seen you working with are the Bulgarian bags and the Hertz band. So I'd love to hear a, a little bit about how you kind of found yourself with those tools and, and what you found as an athlete when you started to use them.
1: Sure. You know, I found those tools probably about the Hertz band more recently, just in recent years, but the Bulgarian bag about 12 years ago. And anyone who loves kettlebells or unconventional training who's listening to this, I mean, the Bulgarian bag is the perfect, perfect, perfect complement to those types of training. It can be certainly a standalone training. Uh, I tend to use it because I love kettlebells so much and I've gotten so much benefit from them. I tend to incorporate Bulgarian bags in with with those tools and, and other unconventional ones I use. But the Bulgarian bag, when you look at the history of the tool, it was developed by the former U.S. Olympic wrestling coach, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling coach, a guy named Ivan Ivanov. and He was an Olympian for Bulgaria and He first developed the bag when he was the coach at the Olympic Training Center, and he wanted one single tool that he could use with a group of his athletes that he could take on the mat, Meaning it, because it's a soft tool, it's made out of, uh, of leather, use on the mats without damaging the mats, that he could train at that time specifically, specifically for muscular endurance training. And he wanted a tool that could mimic a lot of the needs and a lot of the movements of wrestlers. So when you look at wrestlers, you know, they have to have not only exquisite strength, speed, power, flexibility, coordination, muscular endurance, but they need to be strong from awkward positions. They need to be strong in every single plane of movement, front to back, side to side, and rotation. And then they need to be exquisitely strong in every single movement pattern, squatting, bending, twisting, pulling, pushing, gait pattern, you name it. And so he developed this tool and, you know, I first used it to, to complement my kettlebell movements. But to be honest, I really didn't know the potential of it until the last maybe four or so years when I traveled to Boise to work with, with coach Ivan. And now I teach certifications for him and the way I kind of always describe it and I used it heavily with, you know, especially towards the end of the cycle with my firefighters, is all the needs that I just expressed that you need to have you know, a high-level wrestler is exactly what you need to be a very fit and able person and, more importantly, a very fit and able firefighter. Moving from awkward positions, there's a lot of grip involvement as well with that tool, rotational movements, picking up objects from low positions to high positions, being explosive. You know, We're always more, most likely to get injured in the plane that we train the least. And so most people are going to be very strong front to back, which is a lot of what the kettlebells are amazing for. But in rotation, you know, I would say you certainly can train rotation with kettlebells. You, you absolutely can. It just typically requires a little bit more technicality and you're not going to have as much freedom or range of mo- or freedom of movement as you would with the bag. The bag was designed for explosive rotational movements. And so it's a perfect compliment. It's it's a it's a phenomenally fun tool. I've been for 12 years, my my this the bag I've been using 90% of the time for 12 years has just been 26 pounds, which is a testament, you know, to to how different the tool is from other tools out there. And I've really just gotten so much enjoyment from that tool. And and you know, briefly on the Hertz bands are they're they're I always say they're like the industry's. Ah, uh, the health, fitness, performance industry's biggest kept secret because they're really only bands. Like I could put them in my, my my fanny pack if I wanted, but the beauty comes in the creativity of the movement that Coach Yvonne developed with it to once again develop all those needs that I spoke of for his wrestlers. So when you, if anyone watches my Instagram, you know I, I sometimes will post videos and you'll see these, you know, dynamic movements, combination movements, multi or multi-pattern movements. And I could train a group of 20 firefighters and just literally hook a band up to a corner of a fence or the bottom of my, the rail on my truck and I can take them through so many of the movement patterns that they would need on the you – know, at, at the station or on, on a site um, with just a band. So really an incredible tool that's very empowering to share with people
0: yeah and the band not only the movement patterns themselves but it also seemed just like you were saying like a great tool to take if you travel i mean even even if a hotel these days says it has a gym you know it don't normally doesn't have a gym it has a couple of you know stair machines and uh, like you know a few small weights but the uh like you said the ingenuity and and the innovation that you are using in some of the movements it just looked like a, a fun different way of moving and i think that's it is that if you are just a kettlebell person, or you're just a gymnast, or you're just a triathlete, you are going to create this imbalances. So the more you play, the more um, la- uh, latitude you have within your training and the tools that you use. I think the more um, resilient you're going to be.
1: Totally, you said something super cool there. You, you know, you, you said the word play, and like, you know, I, I don't get me wrong. I, I love competing. I'll always love competing, but you know especially in recent years it's been so much more for me personally at least and, and what i what i you know hope to share with these tools is play like you have to be technical don't get me wrong because obviously you know you're dealing with heavy objects and you want to have a level of technical skills so that you can truly play like first you have to know the basics and the foundations. But once you get the basics and and you understand kettlebell training and, and kind of those both styles that I was sharing earlier and the basics of the Bulgarian bag and the bands, man, like the time just goes away. Like I now, I mean, if I have a time, I got to get in and out. Of course I'll, I'll respect that time constraint. But if I don't, it's just, just, I look at it more as, as play than I do working out. Like And that's been one of the biggest shifts. And I honestly believe kettlebells, Bulgarian bags, bands, and some of the other tools like the supless ball, for example, or mace bell training, those for me are so much more about expression and play. And when you can incorporate that, the byproduct is phenomenal and high levels of physical fitness and strength. Um, But it's almost just as a byproduct of you having fun, which is a very different relationship to weight training that I ever had in the past.
0: Yeah. And another area I've noticed, and I don't know if this is your observation, too, with some of the firefighters you work with is implements like the barbell, the gymnastics rings are intimidating to a lot of people. When I first came across uh, Julian Pono and, and strong for, excuse me, Strong Fit um, and really was exposed to sleds and sandbags and things like that, a it it was fun as well like there was very low skill and you know now it was much more of a mental game than anything else but i when i started bringing it to the firefighters that i was training i realized they weren't intimidated because you just say push that sled from here to here that's it you don't have to snatch it you don't have to do anything you know so i think that's the other side of it is not only you know is that play and fun side but also when you remove a lot of that technical skill required for some of the more complex exercises, the intimidation factor goes away and then people then find that love for moving an exercise versus that fear.
1: Totally. Yeah. That's such a great observation. Yeah. Because I mean, even, I mean if you try and teach a group of firefighters or wherever you try and teach them a kettlebell snatch, I mean that's, that's a movement obviously that has quite a, quite a high level of just, prerequisites in the body from shoulder mobility to, you know, spine health, uh, to the awareness of it. And then you have the kettlebell flipping over. But when you take a lot of these, you know, just lower skill movements, then they can really focus on, on the task at hand a little bit easier for sure. Unless you had the ability to spend, you know, more time with them, you know?
0: Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's a good segue to Santa Clara fire. So I would love to hear about what
1: you guys have been doing this last year, man. That was that, we wrapped it up in August, and that was one of the most, honestly, if not most fulfilling project I've ever been a part of. I, I mean, I'll, I work primarily with fitness fitness pros, trainers, uh, combat athletes, and i would worked with some firefighters in the past, but this essentially was a six-month pilot study that we ran with uh, Santa Clara County Fire and an organization called CCFM, which is the California Center for Functional Medicine. And essentially what we ran was – it was six months of – the California Center for Functional Medicine ran um, – if I recall, it was five different modules over the course of six months. So the first module, for example, was nutrition intervention. Then they covered stress, sleep, cancer, and then like an integration uh, wrap-up at the end. And through each module, what was so cool is – I mean we had some great sponsors involved. So we a lot of this was to get data, to essentially – help transform the health, wellness of firefighters nationwide and worldwide, and to prove it, most importantly, to prove it. So there was a lot of data collected. Every firefighter got aura rings uh, to test their sleep and stress core, stress scores and HRV on a daily basis. They ran super in-depth uh, lab panels, uh, body fat analysis, obviously. Um, also they were wearing CGMs or continuous glucose monitors and they wore them at different times during the study to check their, uh, responses to the foods that they were eating from a blood sugar perspective before the nutrition intervention and the diet changes and then after. And so every single month these guys had, there was, um, CCFM came out and did a whole lecture, a module, and then a presentation and then had an action plan And as they were simultaneously going through this this health, wellness, and functional medicine approach to, again, slowly start transforming the the vitality, longevity, and also identifying disease processes before they became significant, and they caught a lot of those, which was so cool, um, my focus was on on the physical side. And so what I did is I took, we had 18 volunteer firefighters from all different ages and levels from... Uh, firefighters that had been apart for just a few years uh, to we had the captain involved and uh, and the chief I'm sorry as well uh, people working forty hours a week I, th- I think we had like three or so people to most of them being on the line and it was amazing so in the beginning I ran orthopedic assessments on everyone so running like structural assessments, checking for postural imbalances to scoliosis to Uh, dysfunctions at all the joints and uh, core dysfunctions, breathing dysfunctions. And then every single month from essentially like a corrective phase. So correcting the imbalances that these guys had every single month, it went from corrective to what we would call like base conditioning or general conditioning to transitioning into firefighter specific training. And then finally the last two months was like higher performance firefighter uh, training and so it was, it was just an amazing experience. And again, the whole goal was to reduce the rate of injury. You know, I was fortunate enough and blessed to do some ride, uh, ride along with the guys and just become very close with a lot of them and to have an understanding a lot of where their injuries come from, from breaking down ceilings to, you know, lifting these just hot, heavy, awkward objects from awkward positions under stress with little street sleep, um, it was an amazing experience and a learning experience for me. And as I mentioned, it was just hugely fulfilling to see the transitions and the and the changes.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, then. So now you have that perspective. I I hold you know a, a good firefighter that takes their job seriously, takes their training seriously to be an athlete as well. You know, I hold them in the same realm as a special forces soldier and anyone else. Um, when you were comparing the overall health of a, a firefighter, you know, x amount of years into their career. What were you seeing versus the same kind of athlete that you would see outside the fire service?
1: So, interesting. So, first thing, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. When you look at the needs of firefighters, so they actually are, in my, in my opinion and in my experience, they need to be some of the highest level athletes out there because when you consider the implements that they're lifting – when you consider the gear uh, that they're wearing, when you consider the environmental conditions, when you consider the visual component that could be impaired when they're in smoke, when you consider the movement patterns, the planes of movement, when you consider the stress, the sleep, all those factors. You know, when I'm in kettlebell sport, don't get me wrong, it's a brutal sport. I can't set the bells down for 10 minutes. But that's a very controlled situation, right? That's just me lifting, you know, 150 pounds for 10 minutes. But it's on a smooth surface. It's one movement in one plane, the variability of the conditions. So uh, when you're talking about a well-rounded elite athlete, I honestly consider uh, serious firefighters to be at the highest level of, of athleticism. And what I found is you know, with at least the group that I worked with, you know, there was, it was interesting because we had quite a variance. We had some people that already came in quite fit, crossfitters and stuff like that. Uh, But even those guys, some of them were on board already with with a healthier approach and whole food eating and stuff like that. But the variance was was so great. Um, And compared to the standard that I honestly feel a firefighter should be at to be fully able, fully ready when a situation may present itself that they need to tap into, uh, again, those levels of, of capability, it was honestly overall quite low. Again, there were those people who, you know, there were those handful who were already, you know, quite fit and stuff, but all of them had significant imbalances. All of them just due to even just the footwear. You know, the feet are the foundation of the body, and there's the feet are the third most sensory rich environment in the body. You have the hands, you have the mouth, and you have the feet. And we receive a tremendous amount of information about our environment from our feet. And just due to the, the shoes that, that firefighters have to wear and just the, the, the fact that we're typically in clunky shoes all day, like there may have been one person in the beginning maybe that had like well-functioning feet and toes. And the, the amount of dysfunctions that can and, – and pain and from back pain to neck pain that can be just resolved just by getting someone's feet to work better is, is out of this world. Um, So the variance was quite high and one of the interesting observations that I had running all the assessments both pre and post was, you know, uh, pretty much everyone improved in in some regard but, you know, I found it fascinating that it makes sense that the longer someone was in the fire service, typically the higher rate of injuries they had from labrum tears to back injuries to, you know, surgeries. And it's a result of the stresses of that job. And then also, potentially, we can say that, you know, just, you know, not having a plan of of training and preparation to build the system to be resilient for those types of stresses, which is is very high in the fire service.
0: Yeah, well, firstly, I'm so glad that you had the same observation, because it's something that I've talked about for a while now. And for you guys who actually have the data that backs that up. Is is phenomenal, and because the 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 point I always make is, you look at the grinder, the drill ground of you know a police academy, a fire academy. These are men and women, if they've taken it seriously, that are gonna show up in pretty good shape by the time they're done with that academy. They're gonna be in great shape, um, and they enter the profession. And I don't, there's no malice behind this, but the the Navy SEALs, the Green Beret soldiers, you know these elite uh, tactical athletes that I've had on they have a team now, you know, of trainers and nutritionists and, and psychologists to enable them to function at the highest level. And what I found with the first responder community, and again, this is just because the the job has evolved to a point where we're doing so much these days, is they are doing these long, long 48, 56 hour work weeks, you know, at, at minimum, if they're not told they have to stay to to cover staffing. And so these these fit, motivated, resilient men and women are being broken down, and just like you said, you know, the lack of sleep is contributing. I think to the injuries because they're not able to heal, especially the ones that take it seriously, that do the extra training. Um, and then, you know, the hormonal side is is taking a shit, for lack of a better word. So the the desire to to train, you know, the 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 hormonal imbalances, testosterone's in the toilet. Um, so it's a double edged sword. Of course, we have ownership as responders to overcome that and certainly own what we do on our days off as well. But I really feel like the environment that they are in at the moment, the shifts, the length of the shifts that they work, meaning the work week um, is setting them up for failure, not success.
1: Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would totally agree with with everything. And like, you know, the the hardest, I mean, the sleep is, is some of the hardest thing You, you cannot, like, you cannot get back sleep. So let's just say you slept, I don't know, three hours one night and you tried to sleep 15 hours the next night. It's not like you, sleep doesn't work like that physiologically in the body, right? It, it's – you could not recoup the extra hours that you missed. And so uh, I would say just, just the sleep stress alone for first responders, especially firefighters, is just a very hard thing. And so to to face – and and that's also why it, it's it's like you have to have – at least, in my opinion and my experience, you have to have all your other ducks in a row, or to at least to the best of your ability. I mean, no one's going to be—you know—perfection is an illusion, right? But like, if you think about all stress in the body, summings and the body interprets all stress at 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 the nervous system level as the same. So the body cannot distinguish between sleep stress, uh, being uh, you know, lifting stress, relationship stress, food stress. And so if you're already at a disadvantage and being quite stressed from the sleep and you're eating, you know, less than healthy foods and, and you're under relationship stress at home or whatever it is, you know, that is what over time contributes to a lot of the diseases and a lot of the even even mental health conditions or whatever it is uh, that we tend to see a lot of times in, in the fire service. Unfortunately, you know, it's just that that sleep is such a crucial part for a healthy and, and well-functioning body. So if that's something due to just the nature of the work, that is just you know an indication that we need to look in these other areas and do our very best to make sure that we're managing ourselves well in, in the other areas that we have more control over. Yeah,
0: no, I agree 100%. And it's the working in, like you said, I mean, to use your phrase. For the individual, the working in is the self-care, the sleep deprivation, the nutrition that we can do when we're you know on shift and off shift. But the employer has to understand as well that there needs to be working in for these men and women. And, and um, I think the solution, the 24-hour shift, is what works in the fire service. And I don't think 12s would be an improvement. I think it would be even worse. But it's that space between, like you were saying, we can't. And get back that sleep that we lost that one shift but we can certainly add another quality night's sleep between the next shift so i think the the 24 48s that are standard with our fire service at the moment if it became a 24 72 which would be a 42 hour work week god forbid we work the same as a regular civilian <laughs> um <laughs> then that would i think allow that you know quote unquote working in to give them one more day of rest and recovery and then really set them up to to crush it for the next shift that they work
1: yeah exactly and and two like one of the things that I just thought of hearing you say that is you know it's it's a lot about you know our understanding education and perception around this stuff because like you know one of the things that I remember and uh, I, I didn't know the exact financials of everything but like I remember in like one conversation I think it was with the chief or just having a conversation with the guys, like if just this study like uh, took away just one workman's comp or one injury, like a whole study or something like that would have paid for itself. So it's like if, if just these little changes, they can go so far. And when you understand how much it costs when someone's injured and on workman's comp, just one person or two people or three people, not to mention the quality of life when someone retires. Because so many people like you know, uh, so many firefighters are, are getting cancer or heart disease in just a few years after retirement. So it's like you work so hard and, and, and it's such a noble profession, but unfortunately, you can't really enjoy it as much after because of, of, of the stress that you, you know that, that you've been under. So just a little bit, honestly, can go such a long way. And it's just, it's just a change of, of mindset around looking at health, wellness, and a lot of this stuff.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, we'll back back to the, uh, the physical side because I'm curious about this. So what was some of well, – let me rephrase the question. Were there any, like, common imbalances that you saw over many of the firefighters? Um, and then second question would be, you know, what was some of the, the training uh, philosophies that you took to that community specifically?
1: Yeah, so what I would say is, you know, a lot of the imbalances were honestly pretty common to the to the normal everyday person, but the reason why the imbalances or the injuries happen were typically more of on the job issues. And so I saw a lot like pretty much every at least starting the study, uh, I saw most most everyone with, with foot and ankle dysfunctions. And that's usually due to wearing shoes and as also the shoes that they wear because Um, like for example, to do a squat or to even step up on the rig, like to climb, you know, the the stairs into, into the rig, like the knee has to migrate forward of the ankle, right? Like if the knee or so, if the ankle doesn't allow for the knee to move forward of the ankle, then what's going to happen is the arch of the foot is typically going to pronate or start pancaking out. And once that happens, that's going to start causing knee issues. And so one of the things that I looked at was mechanics, for example, not only of the foot, but of an actual real-world situation of observing the uh, foot, ankle, and knee, and hip complex when someone steps down from a step and steps up, looking at where the compensations are. And most all of them had, as a result of the foot and ankle issues, had, were either already were having you know some knee issues or were kind of on the way to having knee uh, and hip issues later down the road. So I saw a lot of that stuff um, – I saw a lot of shoulder injuries and that could be attributed to a number of things. Um, You know, from what I observed, like just from the heavy implements, the heavy objects, um, the lack of overhead range of motion that most people had and uh, from their shoulder and and upper back complex. And then being able to being forced to like pull a hose off the rig or like uh, shoulders and neck too, from breaking down ceilings and being in that repetitive position in that repetitive pattern, but not having, the mobility control flexibility to put the shoulder in that place. Um, so that was really common. Uh, those were, and and again, back from, uh, I saw a lot of back injuries typically from my experience and my observation came from person, person transport, especially in awkward positions that involved rotation. So a lot of backs, a lot of shoulders and a lot of feet, uh, foot and ankle dysfunction was kind of the, the overarching theme from what I saw
0: right now it's interesting to say that because i had a podiatrist on a while ago and we and we talked in depth because it's it's been something that i've observed as well i'd like to train barefoot as much as i can um it's funny i retired from the fire service just over a year ago so i haven't worn duty boots and my feet have completely flattened out nice and wide again now um (laughs) but the the one of the sponsors of the show 511 tactical just recently released what they call a norris sneaker and it's not completely minimalist but they've taken a lot of the weight out they've they've made it kind of you know like a flat surface again so it almost looks like a um a basketball I mean a, excuse me a skateboard shoe um and cuz when you look at the regular duty boot you know they've got the shank running underneath they've got the steel or the kevlar toe and it makes these boots so heavy and we have duty boots for any any environment that's going to be hazardous to us so whether it's a car crash or a fire you know we'll throw on our regular bunker boots but for the other calls the day-to-day stuff the testing hydrants the running on ems calls i always thought it was insanity to strap these diving boots on these men and women and make <laughs> them plod around so is do you think that making a more minimal type shoe would improve some of these issues
1: Yes. So I just wrote that down. I was not aware of the Norris sneaker. I think that is a phenomenal, phenomenal idea. And uh, that's something I would love to see. You know, the, the other, a lot of times, you know, you have to do, it goes back to kind of sleep and managing, managing ourselves very well with what we have control over. And like you're saying, of course, when you're on a specific call, you know, you need to wear the protective gear that you have to wear. But outside of that, for more basic calls or just walking around the station, and especially when you go out at home, I mean it doesn't make any sense to wear the same – I think you said diver diver boots or something uh, for these other conditions. It's just – you're pretty much just casting your feet. So imagine – let's use the example. Imagine trying to function your entire day with all the tasks that you have to do with oven mitts on. And that's almost like what you're doing when you're wearing big shoes. Like how much control and how much dysfunction do you think would start building over time in your hands, in your elbows, in your wrists, in your shoulder – If you didn't have full control of your hands. So I think that sneaker idea is a phenomenal idea. Also, when you're, you know, as much as possible, when you're around the house, for example, going barefoot, there's also uh, some companies, I'll name one. The second one is not coming to me right now, but they make um, active toe spreaders. And so traditional toe spreaders, which are, which are like passive, which like you would just, it's just like a little typically uh, rubber or plastic device that you would, Put and it stays in between each toe, and it's to spread the toes apart. Uh, If it's passive, where you just kind of like put them on and you hang out watching TV, that's not what I recommend. But there's companies, again, one is coming to me called um, Correct Toes. Uh, It's like, I think, 50-ish bucks. So it's not cheap, but honestly, it's well worth it. And what you do is you wear these toe spreaders Uh, So you can go barefoot, but the most beautiful thing is you can walk around the house in them. If you wanted, you could train them depending on your shoe. You could potentially, if it has a wide, wide toe box, you might be able to fit it inside the shoe. And so what it's doing is it's spreading the toes apart. And the active component of you being able to do your daily activities is huge because that's truly what integrates the nervous system. It's so much more important to do things that integrate the nervous system. And that, that's the difference between flexibility and mobility. You know, flexibility is very important. It's the prerequisite for mobility. But mobility, the big difference is the definition really of mobility is having strength and control through that range of motion. So it would be like the difference between just a, a – nothing against yoga, but a yoga person who let's just say can, um, you know, do the middle splits or something like that to like a ballerina – who can stand on one foot with balance and control, lift one leg all the way over the head and then control it in any direction they want. That ballerina is going to be so much more resilient uh, when it comes from an injury prevention standpoint because now their nervous system is integrated and they have strength and control. So when you get a product or something like Correct Toes, it can be huge to restore foot function. So from the sneaker you're talking about to barefoot to Correct Toes, those are all things that, that any firefighter can do uh, to improve not only the function of their feet, but everything up chain.
0: Beautiful. Now, I've never heard a correctos. So I'm going to have to look into that. That's amazing. Just, just, so I, just to preface, I know we say the word sneaker. The Norris sneakers do have the, the protection underneath, so they still protect you against nails and that kind of thing. So they're more, much more resilient than a regular sneaker, but they're kind of like halfway between that and the duty boots. So I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. Um, So, just speaking of uh, barefoot for one more moment as well. So, I do as much as I can in my gym barefoot as well. I mean, everything within reason. What's your philosophy on training barefoot?
1: So, um, my philosophy personally on training barefoot, it really depends on the situation. Like, I've tried even in kettlebell sport competing barefoot and I did that for about six months when I was in the rehab process and... It made me a more functional and well-rounded athlete, but from a competitive standpoint, it was not ideal, and I found that you have to test it, right? You have to test both. It depends what your goals and your objectives are. If you're competing in Olympic weightlifting, for example, you're probably, from a mechanical advantage standpoint, going to want to wear Oli shoes, but for general health, whether it's CrossFit, general health, wellness, uh, some type of minimalist-type sneaker or barefoot, I would say, is the way to go. Sometimes, though, um, you have to consider the surface that you're lifting on, of course, uh, and you also have to consider the load that you're lifting. So for like max squats, I'm honestly not a huge, huge fan. You can do barefoot, certainly, uh, especially if you have really strong arches and really strong feet. But, you know, when you're doing, for example, a heavy one rep max squat, the the arch is going to collapse under that load. So having some type of more stable support is going to be more advantageous. So time and place. But for the general person, for the general kind of all around athlete, going barefoot or minimalist type shoes is going to be the way to go unless it's like a specific situation or a specific sport where the shoes would be more beneficial. And what I always say is just test it. Because, you know, your own experience and how your body feels and, of course, your numbers are going to be the biggest gauge. But at the end of the day, even if you do use Olympic weightlifting shoes or some type of more solid shoes with if you needed insoles or something like that, uh, the goal would be not to over rely on it. So it becomes a crutch to use it when you need it, but to make sure that the foot is fully integrated in a day and and work and training, uh, you know, state normally
0: brilliant yeah that aligns a lot with uh i had chad vaughn on the show um and he was saying the same thing like up to about 50 uh, excuse me 70 or 80 percent of your your max when you're training he'll do it barefoot and then when you get to the kind of you know 80 90 um, percent range he'll throw on ollie shoes and it's funny because once you've trained barefoot for a lot of it you throw the ollie shoes on you're like wow this <laughs> this actually feels amazing now
1: yeah, the the other thing that you can do too, and I and I use this with some of my you know my, my, my lifters too uh, when when I'm coaching is l- let's say they're in a competition phase or you know they they made the decision you know that they're going to use Olympic shoes for whatever the reason being that's cool too uh, I'll just have them warm up at least for their, their their joint mobility warm up or even just in the first few lifts barefoot maybe just taking the bar and going barefoot. And just to wake up the feet and excite the feet and integrate the feet in that respect, that can be a great way to do it too. So, for example, if in the training session you're going to use only shoes the whole time, just do your joint mobility. And, again, maybe just take the bar barefoot and then throw the shoes on and and you'll be much better set up uh, for just long-term functionality with that type of approach. Excellent. All right. Well – I just got – actually, I found the other toe spacer and it's actually called the toe spacer – uh, is the other one so either Correct Toes or the Toespacer dot com are the two that I've used.
0: Brilliant! Thank you so much. All right. Well, then one more thing. Speaking of uh, of bare feet, before we we learn about your Cambo experience, um, <laughs> I know you've worked with a lot of fighters, and and back to the Bulgarian bag, I I agree a hundred percent as far as the application with rotational movement because you mentioned about picking people up. They never fall in the middle of a furniture free room. It's normally wedged next to a toilet or in a shower. So um, you know, and then the same thing with striking. You know, we're trying to open a door, it's usually in some awkward hallway somewhere. Um so but there's a there's a great parallel I think with the combat community, especially you know jujitsu and wrestling. Um did you actually do any of the martial arts yourself throughout that that, you know, younger
1: years? You know what? I did not. So only in recent years have I done just some jujitsu uh, I work a lot with combat athletes, honestly, mainly because of the tools that I use were, were designed for combat athletes, and I've spent a lot of time uh, observing and working with all different ones, but a little bit of jujitsu, but for me, it was gymnastics, and then uh, 10 years of powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, kettlebell sport, uh, but now, really, again, especially in the recent years, working with coach, working so closely with with Coach Ivan and spending you know weeks and weeks in, in Boise at where his headquarters are and with the wrestlers, so um, jujitsu is actually something that I would really love to dive deeper in because the training the training that I'm doing now for fun because I'm, I'm taking a break from kettlebell sport and competing, uh, the training that I do now is exactly what a firefighter and or a combat athlete would do or would need to do. So uh, the conditioning side is there and uh now <laughs> i just need to dive deep in the technical side
0: yeah yeah and i don't think it's going to be interesting because the the injury side is i don't know if i'm on my own i think a lot of people suffer from this too but with jujitsu specifically it, it it sucks you get beaten up so again you're trying to balance everything with your conditioning but i'm still working on the how not to tweak every muscle in my body <laughs> section of uh combat sports
1: yeah. One, one thing that worked that I do tremendously, and, and I did this, and this was honestly one of the biggest value adds to the firefighters that, that we, I was working with on that study, uh, and also with the combat athletes, is a specific tool that I use, uh, or a modality, depending how you, how you look at it. Uh, it's called Eldoa have, have you heard of that, by I, chance? I have not, actually, no. So this was from the, I mean, I I broke down the training for the firefighters into the phases that I discussed earlier. But pretty much what I found is what these guys needed more than anything else, honestly, more than the fitness side of things, was the corrective side. And ELDOA is – so it's a French acronym. I'll say the translation, but it's just a long word translated from French. But it's – so ELDOA translates in English to the word loads. It's an acronym, and it stands for – longitudinal osteoarticular decoaptation stretching long long word but essentially what it means and it was just brought up not too long ago on joe rogan uh ben greenfield was talking about it i worked with him a little little bit uh one day on those and um what it is essentially is there's specific postures and there's a specific posture that addresses pretty much every single joint in the body and it's so so precise so There's a specific posture for just L5S1, for T6, T7, C4, C5, uh, the glenohumeral joint. And the whole premise and the main goal with the LDOA is to create what's called a decoaptation effect, which just means a space opening effect in a joint. So you would put put the body in a specific position, and the beautiful thing that it's doing is – and they only last one minute. And in one minute, you can get – Just incredible, incredible changes, so many cases of people uh, like getting recommended to do surgery, uh, not needing to do surgery, disc bulges, herniations. Uh, From an athletic standpoint, just better awareness, better circulation, it can help hydrate discs, and overall sense of well-being, but literally just in one minute, you're building strength and space in a specific joint. And so that was something that I incorporated a lot with the firefighters. We actually had one day a week solely dedicated to Eldoa type stretches slash strengthening based exercises. Uh, they're not easy by any means, but the beneficial effect in my own training and what I use with my fighters and with, with the firefighters as well uh, has just been incredible. And again, it's it only takes, you know, one minute per posture. And if someone just did literally just one posture a day and was consistent about it, especially after training or before bed, like I've really seen some pretty impressive changes um, it, that people have experienced. And, and I attribute honestly a lot of the, the success to what they experienced on the physical side and the movement capability and just the, the body awareness from implementing that one tool.
0: Excellent that does sound very similar to the the foundation training that that saved my back too and it's the same kind of thing I'm sure they're they're parallel philosophies but there's one called the founder where you're basically hinging with your arms forward and it's it's lengthening but adding tension at the same time and yeah i mean i I can say it myself it it absolutely saved my back and it was by strengthening the muscles around the spine taking the pressure off off the nerves and giving length to the the you know, the spinal column and allowing those discs to go back where they're supposed to.
1: Exactly. Yep. Yep. And I've got I've I've gone through a little bit of foundation training. I have some friends put me through it, and there definitely are some parallels, especially how it uses the fascial system and uh, to utilize you know those that that decoaptation effect. So yeah, both are phenomenal. Excellent.
0: All right. So then let's talk about Cambo, a word I'd never heard of before. So <laughs> you're gonna have to educate me right from the ground up.
1: Yeah. So this this uh, just be upfront. This may sound a little a little out there and a little strange to people, but My mission has always been just athletic performance, uh, health and well-being. And so I've done my very best since I was a kid to surround myself with just uh, good people, good mentors, people who were were doing stuff in sports and wellness and health uh, that I really always wanted to achieve. And if there was a way to be a better athlete or more healthy person, I always wanted to get into it. And so Combo essentially – is something I've been using for probably the last four years personally, and I'll, and I'll definitely share a lot of my personal experience with it. Essentially what it is is they it's – a, it's, it's a medicine, but it's not a medicine in the Western sense. So it's not like what you would traditionally think. Essentially it's, it's a secretion from a particular type of frog. And when you look at uh, the tribes in South America, they've been using it for thousands and thousands of years. And those tribes would use it mainly for three reasons. Uh, the first reason is they used to call it hunter's magic or hunter's medicine. And so they would use it before they would go on a hunt and be exposed to extreme conditions. Uh, it's said to improve strength, stamina, resiliency, uh, can even bring make your vision a little bit clearer. Um, it removes so many toxins from the body that it's also said to reduce the human odor because of that. And they would use it to, again, increase just their, their, their physical ca- capabilities and their physical capacities um, and to make them, you know, again, run faster. So everything you could think about it being a, a more physically fit and healthier person, that's what they would use it for. They would also use it for they, – they called it kind of like the, uh, uh, the jungle vaccine. They would use it to help treat infections like snake bites, uh, malaria, and then the third thing they would use it for is to help clear what's called panama. And panama is essentially like kind of like a uh, dark energy or heavy energy. Like if someone's just going through uh, just blockages in their life and they can't really bust through or just kind of bad things keep happening to them, they would use that to break through that. And now more and more research is being done around it. And what what's actually happening is – the the interesting thing about this particular secretion from this frog, the, the frog is um uh, phylomedusa bicolor is the is the name of the, the particular type of frog. And it's a tree frog um, in, in South America, and essentially it has a range of bioactive peptides. Now the peptides in it are essentially bioactive essentially just means it's it has a positive impact on the body and its biological functions, and the peptides in it are essentially either already present in the human body or very similar to the ones in the human body. And there's, there's nothing, there's been, there's been a toxicology study on it. There's absolutely nothing toxic about it. Uh, you cannot OD on combo. It's not illegal. It's not, uh, some people said, thought it was psychoactive. It's not psychoactive. Um, and it's really an incredible, incredible physical cleanse for the body. Um, It can, you can also think like it can, it can help balance the immune system out a little bit. And, you know, when I first got my first treatment, I literally was blown away because I always tell people like the next day I felt like I could run through a brick wall. Like I felt so vital. Um, and there's so the, the properties of the peptides, if you look at them, they have antifungal, antiparasite properties uh, they also have anti-inflammatory properties. There's there's a lot of things that can help with the functioning of, of just the body as a whole. And I had gotten so much benefit from it over the years from just my physical performance and my, and my just physical well-being and energy. Um, my sleep was better that I was like, wow, I really want to share this with someone. And so I just got back from like r- very, very, very intense – uh, training for two weeks on on this on this combo uh, kind of frog medicine, if we want to call it that, from the secretion of of that frog. And essentially, there was no Wi-Fi, really, no cell phone service. Um, we did a lot of treatments, a lot of understanding the science of it, a lot of serving treatments. And one of the things that I found most fascinating was we were using it as well for um, using it with specific meridian kind of type treatments. So, like using just some basic basic acupuncture points. Uh, on the meridians uh, to help elicit some of the effects, working with the chakra system, doing auricular type therapies with it. And again, it, it's just been such a helpful tool from a cleansing, detoxing, overall wellness in my own life that I felt really passionate to start sharing it with people. And uh, so that's, that's where I was and so now uh, my goal and my dream is to share it with more people. And it's a short experience. It only lasts about 20 to 40 minutes. It is quite uncomfortable. It's probably one of the most intense things you'll probably do. Uh, it's quite a powerful purging agent. So there's uh, waves of typically vomiting, um, you know, sweating. You could have a lower purge as well, so like a bowel movement. But the 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 vehicle of of how it excretes the toxins from the body is has really just been a great asset to my own physical performance and well being. So now now I'm excited whether it's going to be running retreats or for sure doing one on ones and group sessions with, with this, with this uh, combo
0: it's amazing, it's funny because I've, I've talked about this before there's some great great innovation in medicine, you know, there really are especially trauma medicine and, and you know, other areas but then with chronic disease management I think we've, we've developed this arrogance that we think that our pills and potions that we just came up with the last few decades trump medicine that's been used for millennia by these ancient tribes and it's so great to see some of those breaking back through and you know even things we discovered recently like cbd but these plant medicines really start to find their way back into the forefront when these chronic disease prescription pills have done nothing but create addicts
1: totally and when you when you look at like i don't i mean i used to know like the the specific pharmaceuticals that were actually derived from like There's quite a few that are derived from like snake venom and stuff like that. And now I think there's even like, don't quote me on this, but like something like well over, I think like 50, 60 patents of pharmaceuticals, for example, companies trying to use combo for their therapies. And again, there's more studies being put out there um, on what it can do to help, you know, to to help with certain ailments potentially that people may have. But there are more studies, and it's like I really do see it being like the you know the wave of the future of just like you said using these traditional medicines that tribes have been using for thousands and thousands of years and of course it may sound strange because it, it's different from the traditional way that we were gro- grown up to brought up to think about kind of healing and and these things but uh it really is it can be quite profound or at least that that's what I found in my own experience for sure right now in
0: in one of your posts recently i think it was when you were just done or you, you were in it you mentioned dealing with some trauma is that something that you're willing to talk about
1: that uh you know i can share a little bit about that 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 was uh so i shared on my instagram post like it, it helped me uh break through uh, a trauma that, that occurred when i was younger and essentially uh without getting too much into it because it was a little personal it's uh you know something that happened you know there's so much of our unconscious programming and patterning that that runs our life. I think it's like the the unconscious mind is, is like runs ninety three percent of the show, and the and the conscious brain is like the other seven percent. And so, what we think of our interactions with ourself, with our people around us, a lot of that is unconscious, and you know, a lot of it is is our blind spots. And so, one of the things of my own personal experience, especially through taking a lot of combo during this two week intense training was I really had a felt understanding that it is so much more for me than just a physical cleanse and a physical, uh, treatment. Like it can very well be great for someone who is, uh, you know, working through emotional challenges or blockages or challenges in their life. And in one of the experience, it brought me back to a specific incidence, uh, of childhood that uh, I experienced to be traumatic, but I, I totally forgot about it. And I, I had no idea that it had a lot of weight and a lot of the, the patterns of the way I am from my fears to a lot of the areas that I feel are lacking in my life to not feeling good enough. Um, a lot of the things that, that are running the show unconsciously in my interactions and things like that, you know, it brought me to that experience and provided in an, an incredible opportunity for me to connect with that experience, be brought back to that time and purge it out and release it, you know, release those things that are no longer serving for, for the type of person and the man that that I really want to become. And, you know, I had an, a massive emotional release uh, in that moment. So, you know, crying and and even, you know, some, some yelling in that time. So it's just a very powerful release for me. And, you know, one of the big things that that I'm doing right now in my life, especially this month is creating space. It's, it's a theme that I'm really trying to work on because my pattern has always been to do, do, do more achievements, more, whatever, more competitions. And what I've really realized is, you know, if I really want to bring in the things that I want to bring in and energize the things I want in my life, you know, I, I need to start creating more space for those things to, to happen as opposed to filling my schedule up and just doing more as opposed to uh, being more and so that's why you know i went away for these two weeks training i um, not doing too much coaching right now i'm taking a little vacation at the end of this month for a few days and with that space you know i really do believe it, it gave me that opportunity to do some of the deeper inner healing work and again combo is most like most going to be known for, for the physical cleansing uh benefits that it has And potentially can have for people and and it's going to be different for everyone. So you can't speak like there's no hard fact that you can say about combo. But for me, it really connected me much, much deeper with, with it and gave me the opportunity to connect with, with something that happened in childhood and then, and really work through that. So, you know, I left that experience just feeling like just so empowered and, and grateful Uh, grateful for for combo grateful for the group of people around me uh, grateful for the area that I was in and I really feel like I had reclaimed a sense of my own empowerment and also my voice back Um, it's hard to say you know it's very fresh I just returned a few days ago and it's it's hard to say but the only thing I can say I I feel different like I, I really I really do feel different and the people who have seen me and I've communicated with, with some of my classmates as well. And it's kind of like the same thing across the board. Like, you know, people who know us or whatever, just like there's something different, whether it's brighter or, uh, just our energies are different or more enthusiastic. Um, there's something different that I feel, uh, has happened. And, um, it just feels, it feels incredible, man. It it feels really amazing. And I'm I'm so grateful.
0: That's, that's incredible. Now I just want to ask for a second so through your life obviously you have done exactly what you just said you've thrown yourself into the sports that you did you know the coaching um and i've had some people on the show that have had traumatic incidents that either threw themselves into the gym you know to a point of training to to kind of fill that emotional void or working same thing um when you identified this this trauma that you hadn't really kind of recognized for a long time do you attribute any of that high high work ethic to maybe suppressing some of those subconscious thoughts
1: yeah i would agree with that i i would totally agree with that i mean for me a con you know a theme that i've really been working and i'm happy to share this is just just not, not you know not feeling enough you know not feeling good enough and so always having to do more and train more and you know, I think it's, it's that double edged sword. It's like, you know, the beautiful thing is it's it's been a, a very deep and passionate motivator for me to continue competing, to continue to push myself. But, you know, at the same time that, that now now it's like I'm looking back and I and I and I understand, you know, I understand why I understand more why I am the way I am. And if that's, you know, if that's the route that I choose to go in terms of, you know, continually competing and doing those things, then that's cool. But the, the, the even cooler thing is just having an understanding now of why I'm doing what I'm doing as opposed to the un- so, so much of the unconscious programming around those decisions uh, running the show. And it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, like I said, it's something like 93% of our, our life is run by the unconscious, subconscious so there's, you know, there's constant going to be block, constantly going to be blind spots. But you know, what do they say? Like awareness is the prerequisite for change. And so as soon as you're aware of something, then you have the, the knowledge, the power uh, to do something about it. And, um, you know, so moving forward, you know, like I said, it makes more sense of why I am the way I am. Uh, and if I choose to compete, I would love it to be from you know uh, a different place and and it has been in the last few years for sure it's been more holistic body mind spirit integration but uh if i choose to do something i want it to be out of out of pure joy and 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 love and uh passion for what i'm doing and wanting to share as opposed to feeling lack of or less than it's just a different energy around creating both both can create amazing things it's just what's the energetic kind of imprint around that 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 i feel really can impact not only, not only us or myself, but all those around me, you know, my friends, my family, et cetera. So, uh, moving forward, you know, with that, with that awareness, I just, I want to just keep being mindful and continually digging deeper, uh, so that I can create new programs and new patterns and, and create space for that as well. Absolutely.
0: Well, it sounds very exciting because you've turned a, a page now, so there's, there's going to be all kinds of aha moments coming up.
1: <laughs> yeah, my dreams have been crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alright, well I want to just hit on one subject quickly before we go to some closing questions and let you go. But um I'm curious, I know when I when I um looked at Paul check I saw it seemed like there was um some kind of plant based emphasis as far as nutrition. What is your own nutritional philosophy?
1: So I mean it's I don't really have a specific philosophy, but I can certainly share like kind of what I eat. So like Pretty much it's always a whole food-based diet. Um, I really support as much as possible local farmers, uh, good quality organics. Unfortunately, the organic label doesn't mean too much today, but you know, farmer's market, I also go each year to buy a full beef from a local farm, 100% grass-fed, grass-finished, husband-and-wife place. So always whole foods, always organic foods. Um, I rotate a lot of my foods as well. So Paul, in his book, uh, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, has – an amazing tool in the back of the book called a four-day food rotation diet, and essentially what it is is it's four days. So if you think about like let's just say Monday through Thursday, he broke down foods based off of taxonomy or family structure. So like as an example, if we just took the proteins, Monday would be – there's a whole list in there. I'll just list a few, but like meats from like the beef buffalo lamb family. Then the next day in terms of proteins would be like the bird family, so like uh, turkey, um, uh, chicken, um, stuff like that. Then the next day would be like venison, halibut is in the same family, pork is in that family. Then the fourth day would be like your salmon, your scallops, your shrimp, etc. And so what that does is in a healthy individual from mouth to anus, it typically takes about 72 hours for a food to enter and exit the system. And so what you're doing on a four-day food rotation is – Let's say I ate beef on Monday. I wouldn't come back to that family, maybe not even eat beef, but until Friday. And so what it does is you're giving the immune system a full one 24 hour, one day, 24 hour break from that food and from that family. And having had gut and digestive issues for many years, um, you know, that's been a huge part of my healing protocol and it can heal the immune system very well. It increases also the variety of the diet. Um, so I rotate my foods for the, for the, just for the healing perspective of it, for the variety perspective of it, uh, whole foods, organic. Um, and that also lets me not just not overconsume any one protein. So, um, I also have worked in a raw vegan kitchen before. So like I've got no dogma around food. I really feel like there's a time and a place and especially based off of the training that I'm in, that is going to necessitate my macronutrient ratio. So I, I'll never say like a 50-50 or a whatever ratio. It's really, really going to depend. And through work, especially, you know, with Paul as my inspiration, developing more of an intuitive approach to eating. So being quiet before mealtimes and even placing my hands over the food and and asking myself internally, you know, what should I be eating today or how much of this do I want? And that relationship with food has been huge, probably the most transformative thing in my life from a nutrition perspective to where it's less about, you know, being overly consumed with ratios or being uh, a vegetarian or a paleo guy or whatever. It's just good quality food and truly developing a relationship with the food to know what, what I need in that moment. So it's a, it's a, it's a flex, flexitarian approach. We'll, we'll call it uh, <laughs> more than anything.
0: Brilliant. All right, well, I appreciate that. Cause I mean, it's, it, I love, all these different inputs. I've had people that have succeeded on the carnivore diet. I've had people that are, you know, plant-based. I'm about to interview James Wilkes, who just made that movie, the game changers. Um, So, you know, I think that's it. We're all different. We're all different human beings, different stages of health, ill health. And, you know, I think it, like you said, it's a, a constantly ongoing thing. So the more people, I get to listen to the more philosophies I get to hear about, you know, I think the the more information there is out there for people to find the right fit for them today and then maybe transition to something else a few weeks from that.
1: Totally. And, and of course, there's going to be commonalities like in anything, like obviously like sugar is going to be a big thing to avoid, alcohol, uh, you know, there's, there's a, if you're not eating a whole foods diet, if you're eating processed foods, like there's certain foundational things for sure that are no matter what nutritional philosophy you subscribe to are going to be pretty much well accepted across the board but then within that 100 percent it's just depending on the individual it depends on their genetics it depends on where they came from it depends on what their stress is like it depends on again what they need in that moment and then being not so rigid to know when life changes or whatever it is when it's time to to transition from maybe you get tremendous benefit i just went vegetarian for two weeks while at this training And I felt, you know, pretty good. And then I came back and now I've got access to meat. And, uh, you know, I'm eating very high quality meat. I'm not overdoing it. Not every meal has meat in it. Um, But it's what I feel my body needs after taking that break. So there's a time and a place for everything. And if we can, I think the key is to be curious. And the the curiosity, I think, is the key. And just always being willing to experiment. I think those are the the biggest things from a nutrition perspective and, and other things as well in life.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. And just to go back to what we talked about at the beginning of the interview with with the injury, I think that's that's something that we struggle with as a society at the moment is to say, well, to think that if you're going to change something, that that means you have to say I was wrong. And it's not, you know, things evolve like you and I, the way we were raised, the way we were told you're supposed to exercise, the way we're told we're supposed to eat was wrong <laughs> like really really <laughs> wrong so it's okay to be like okay you know we listen to those people we tried this you know i got hurt okay now i've changed to this now i'm gonna go down this route and i think that understanding that life is one constant evolution and there are gonna be changes in your mind and that's okay is a very important philosophy for us to to absorb
1: mm, yep we're in i'm 100 percent in agreement with that for sure
0: Right. Okay. Well, I want to transition to some, some closing questions. You've been very, very generous with your time and I really appreciate it. Um, the first question I always ask, is there a book that you love to recommend to people? It can be about what we've talked about today or something completely different.
1: Man, the first book that honestly always comes up, it's Paul's book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy. Um, that's usually the first book I always recommend. It's you know, It was written you know years ago, but it's still 100% relevant and I almost reread it every year. Um, because it has just so many valuable things in it from nutrition to sleep to training to working in, like we talked about to creating your own flexibility program. Um, and that, that really, I always feel that like if people followed that, like if they follow that book to a T and it helps you decide your own diet, for example, in a questionnaire in terms of where to start on your own health journey, like from a priority standpoint, uh, if people followed that book to a T, it would pretty much solve about 90% of the health-related challenges that most people face. Um, so it, it's really just the foundation for a lot of the work that I do and is usually a go-to for for really anyone that I recommend.
0: Excellent. All right. So then the same question, uh, a movie and or documentary?
1: Mm. Man, uh, so a movie, let's see. I love The Last Samurai, I'm going to I'm gonna have to give it up for that one. Uh, huge fan of The Last Samurai. Um, and then documentary, you know, I, I actually, surprisingly, I actually didn't watch it until fairly recently, just a few months ago, but um, uh, it's the one with the Russian, the doping. Um, oh God, um, Icarus. Icarus that one was just blue 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 my mind so that's just at the forefront of my mind I'm sure others will come to me uh but uh Icarus was just a as, as an as a competitive athlete as someone who works with athletes uh I was just blown away by that documentary and and really enjoyed um and was shocked watching it so Icarus yeah
0: excellent right. I've had that mentioned many times it was a great great film um, okay next question is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast to speak to the first responders and military of the world
1: you know what um paul check if you can get paul check yeah paul check would be the the first person that, that that comes to mind um he was also in the he was a paratrooper in the 82nd airborne division i know and he was also on the army boxing team he was a competitive triathlete for the for the army as well so Um, and he's just, I mean, he's made his career on solving medical failures and truly has the most holistic approach of anyone I've ever studied. And I've been studying his work for since I was 18. So well over 14 years. And, um, he's really not only been a a tremendous teacher for me, but, uh, being fortunate enough to work with him one-on-one for a few years has just been, you know, a, a tremendous gift. So, uh, paul check would be would be my guy to get on the show for sure
0: yeah no i, I was thinking i was if you hadn't named him i was gonna ask anyway so um, <laughs> i don't know if you're able to connect us or not but i would definitely love to to try and get him on
1: i i will happily uh set that up i i'm pretty sure i can make that happen
0: fantastic thank you so much all right so then the very last thing before we talk about where we can find you and the, the treat the retreats that you're planning to do um is there anything else that you do to decompress that we haven't discussed
1: um, you know, between the working in was what has been huge for me because that was the, the bridge for me as an athlete to kind of incorporate more meditation type activities. Meditation was something very foreign, strange and intimidating to me. And then once I learned it from how to eat, move and be healthy and from Paul, you know, it was it was movements that I was familiar with, like squatting, for example, and it just, you know, you just stay within the criteria. And it was, you know, I've had some of the, the greatest realizations just from, just from the working in stuff. And, and any exercise, you can turn any exercise into a working in. That's the beautiful thing. So, um, you know, the working in to seated meditation, which is almost a daily practice, uh, also a breathing practice as well. So a breath practice uh, and then just chilling out uh, has been some of the biggest things. I don't have a TV. That was one of the advice. One of my close friends gave to me years ago. He's like, uh, if you really want to take, you know, just your, your life to the next level, your performance, whatever he's like, throw away your TV. And of course with the computer and stuff, if I want to watch any shows, I can easily do that. So, uh, not having a TV in my house has actually been a huge thing, uh, for me. You know, I find myself doing more meditation stuff or, or journaling or connecting with family and friends, Um, more so so that that's been a huge addition for me as well
0: excellent yeah i didn't throw away my tv but i disconnected cable about nine years ago now after my son recited a qvc commercial to me at about the age of five (laughs) so i'm like all right (laughs) we're done (laughs) but yeah but it was it was you know life changing just that i mean i still have the device but just taking away the constant screaming where you have to actually go and select deliberately something to watch now was was yeah totally transformative so i can imagine getting rid of it completely was another level again
1: (laughs) exactly yeah totally
0: all right so then the retreats so tell me uh you know what you're planning and how people can find out about those
1: yeah so best place to find me uh i'm most active on instagram and uh my my name on instagram is mike.salemi s-a-l-e-m-i and uh website is mikesalemi.io not dot com Um, those are the best places. I'm not so active right now on Facebook, but I plan to start, uh, hopefully, hopefully in the new year, maybe, maybe sooner. I'm not quite sure, but doing semi-private retreats, um, with up to even four people. I, I pretty much have built my home to be almost like a mini retreat center, um, to where I can run. I don't know exactly what I'm going to call it, but essentially it'll have more of like a, a balanced warrior approach where it'll have combo, We'll do some physical training. We'll do breath work and meditation and, again, working on our own, the stories that we tell ourselves about our limiting beliefs and, and really busting through those. So retreats is something that I'm very excited about, both small, kind of semi-private, private, and also larger that have to do with the combo. Uh, so if anyone is interested, um, you know, shoot me a message on Instagram. Uh, my email is mike at mikesalemi.io. Would love to connect with you on that. And then if anyone wants any kettlebell information or any of that, um, you know, look me up on YouTube. I've done a bunch of videos for other, other organizations and I have a kettlebell program out that covers, there's more information in the program, honestly, than two full blown certifications on both the hard style and the soft style. Uh, there's over 450 videos on that and, uh, it's just a tremendous resource. It's not even a course. I would just call it like the most comprehensive resource out there. And uh, you can find it at programs.mikesalemi.io. And uh, of course, if anyone wants any Bulgarian bag information, I teach certifications on that. But reach out, would love to, to, to work with anyone who's listening. And just being just a, a, a higher performer, whether that's as a firefighter, a combat athlete, um, in work, uh, that, that's really my mission, and to really just raise the vibration of everyone out there to the best of my ability.
0: Brilliant. Well, I just want to say thank you, firstly, for you know helping our profession i mean what you guys did in santa clara i know is going to resonate through the the world's fire service um but also just taking the time i mean each person that comes on this show lends an hour and a half two hours of their time and yeah you know, this is going to be listened around the world and and to to pick the brains of someone who's an elite coach like you and really understands our profession um to me is invaluable so i just really really appreciate you taking the time to come on
1: man it's been a real real pleasure james honestly thank you for having me and um yeah i'm I'm just super grateful to be here and to be sharing with you so thank you